Hello, I am Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. As High Speed 2 winds its 134-mile way from Birmingham to London, it passes through an ever-changing landscape, one that has been shaped by centuries of migration, settlement, growth and development. There are cities, towns, villages and countryside that all line the route and each present their own set of unique challenges. HS2 has been designed to minimise its impact on communities and the environment, both in the short term and the long term. And in this episode, we are going to explore the most powerful tool in the project's arsenal. It's dirty and dangerous and it's very expensive, but it's incredibly exciting and important because it's the only way that a railway can pass through a town or an area of outstanding natural beauty without anyone knowing that it's there. In this episode, we're going underground to meet the tunnelers. Back in 1812, the famous engineer Mark Brunel was puzzling over the problem of how to build a tunnel under the River Thames. But while he was working at the docks at Chatham, he became aware of the shipworm for the very first time, and he wrote of the occasion to his granddaughter, Sophia. I happened to see before me a piece of condemned timber, a portion of the keel of a ship wherein the sea worm had made many erosions even near the water edge. I then said to myself, these little things have made little tunnels and so might we by adopting some corresponding means of protection. The little worms secreted a mucus as it bored into the wood, which lined the hole and hardened to protect the creature from swelling wood and the rush of the waves. The idea for the tunnelling shield was born. The early machine was a wooden structure that formed sort of like lots of little boxes of cells and each of them contained a miner who would then excavate their own section of tunnel while simultaneously being protected by the structure. Thus, 36 excavators or miners can be equally protected, one half in cutting out the ground and the other half in advancing the frames and securing them by means of powerful screws. In the meantime, a certain number of bricklayers construct the double arch in brick and Roman cement. Although not without its troubles, the Thames Tunnel was successfully excavated between 1825 and 1843 by what the Times called Brunel's capacious apparatus. And with it, the Victorians had notched up another engineering marvel, the first known tunnel constructed by humans under a navigable river. And nearly 200 years later, the Thames Tunnel is still in use today as part of the London Overground Network. Today, the modern TBMs in use on the HS2 project look obviously a little different to back in the 1800s. And they are manufactured by a family-owned company from Schwano in the Baden-Württemberg region of southwest Germany. 
This company, which bears the name of its founder, Martin Herrenknecht, dominates modern TBM tunneling. Yeah, I am born in the region and I was growing up in Almanzweier, where our factory is now. Martin was working in Switzerland at the time he decided to found Herrenknecht. On the Selisberg tunnel as a mechanical engineer, that was at that time the longest uh, road tunnel in Switzerland near the Lake Fjordstetten. We call it Lake Luzerne. And then I started 1975 with the engineering office, small office. My idea was always 1,200 people employed, you know, and now it got a little bit bigger. The growth in demand for tunnelling as the world population booms and countries rapidly urbanise has been incredible. Connections between cities are also feeding this demand, with China building around 26,000 miles of high-speed rail within just 20 years, complete with thousands of tunnels needed to traverse more rugged topographies and pass beneath the urban centres. High-performance tunnels define how people and things move around. There is huge demand to build subterranean infrastructure faster. It's a story that is just repeated everywhere you look, and this growth in demand has allowed modern tunnelling technology to reach an absolutely mind-blowing level of maturity and reliability. Back in 1975, though... It was much more simple, you know. We started with pipe-checking machines, was an excavator machine, you know, with, uh, without any compressed air, you know, at that time, lots of uh, sewage tunnels had to be built in Germany. The machines were small, just one to four metres in diameter for simple works. And Martin says the operator had to feel the ground and feel the machine a lot more than they do today. Simple tools, if you see them today, against the machines. Today, the machines have uh, thousands of sensors, you know, and uh, all relevant TBM data available to the operating in real time. The physical capabilities of the machines have improved immensely too. Since the 70s, tunneling advance rates have at least tripled, even in the worst conditions. And with the introduction of new innovations that allow continuous advance, this figure is still improving. And with tunnelling being able to take place so efficiently and quickly, it can allow projects to develop with a programme that suits them, rather than being held back by technological limitations. In the UK, phase one of the high-speed two rail project is taking an exceptional 10 years only from vision to implementation. In Germany, it takes 50 years uh, at the moment. We have to speed up the situation. Congratulations to England. HS2 will make use of 10 of these machines. And each of them is up to 10 metres in diameter. They are hundreds of metres long, hundreds of tonnes in weight, and with a thrusting force measured in hundreds of millions of newtons. 
Tunneling is an incredibly expensive business and it's only done when the alternatives are unpalatable or just not possible. And which is why we have historically tunneled in these dense urban environments where surface space is so scarce or valuable that it makes the use of underground space worthwhile. Now we also use tunnels to avoid environmental or cultural damage. We tunnel below an area of outstanding natural beauty or to avoid impacting on a community. In fact, in phase one, nearly half of the route will run in tunnels. But this much tunneling presents its own complications and requires incredible skill from the cutting edge of the infrastructure sector. It is impossible to perfectly understand the preciseness of the underground environment prior to tunneling. Even the most extensive ground investigation program in British history only will give a best estimate. Geotechnical conditions can vary meter by meter and moment to moment. And tunnel engineers must anticipate what they can and react quickly to what they can't while still building an affordable railway. But there is so much more to tunneling than the machinery used to drive the long running tunnels. There are station caverns, so-called green tunnels, ventilation shafts, logistics tunnels, and all of the associated support. My name is Martin Nowak. I'm the, the head of tunnel engineering for HS2, and I've been on the programme for just over a year. Martin heads HS2's team of tunneling experts. They provide advice and support to the contractors and other delivery companies, and they look after the tunneling standards and handle requests for departures from these or departures from the design. Overall, I'm responsible for ensuring that the, the tunnels as built are compliant to the requirements that have been set down by the requirements team. The HS2 specification borrows from the recent Crossrail and Thames Tideway projects, but the organisation didn't want to be too prescriptive for its design and construction contractors. There needs to be room to allow good engineers to do their jobs. It's, it's, a, it's a good technical guide, but they have each then produced their own detailed specifications that then sit alongside it. It prescribes that fire testing needs to happen and how ground movements are analysed and there are comprehensive TBM specifications, while water ingress and tunnel linings are based on the British Tunnelling Society's specification. The tunnelling on HS2 is undeniably ambitious. The longest and deepest tunnel will be the Chilton Tunnel, measuring 10 miles long and will go as deep as 90 metres. And probably the toughest works are in the Euston Tunnel. They've got the, the most variable ground conditions, I would say. So you've got you now the good London clay at the Euston end and then as you, as you go westwards, um, you go into the Lambeth group, you have sands and gravels and so on, quite, some quite high water-bearing areas. Just north of Euston, the railway passes under some infrastructure relics, which are called the Camden Winding Vaults. And these are effectively enormous underground brick-line cathedral-like structures. 
Now, the HS2 lines go straight underneath them, which will call for an enormous amount of ground treatment work to support. Basically, they need to inject a supporting cement-like grout into the geology to improve its supporting properties. And as you continue north, a 4.5-mile twin-tube tunnel will take passengers to Old Oak Common Station and then a further 8.4 miles through the Northolt Tunnel to West Rislip. And it's there that the tunnelling exits the classic London clay and instead goes into sandy, gravelly clay of the Lambeth Group. And here the chances for voids or air pockets or other risks drastically increase, making the construction of cross passages between tunnels which are needed for emergency use a much more careful affair. But Northolt will be another site that we revisit later in this episode. And then when we get to the Chilton Tunnels... The Chilton Tunnels of the project are by far the longest and the deepest on the HS2 project. They run for 10 miles through the Chalk Hills to the northwest of London, and they are the first tunnels to be built to protect an area of outstanding natural beauty rather than just being built to get through a city. They had a, an initial challenge in that within the first 200 metres of the drive, they had to undercross the M25. Which is, of course, London's orbital motorway. So obviously that can't be allowed to deform or settle in in any way. Um, so there was a lot of work they did with, with national highways to to get the, the approvals for that. Um, and it, you know, it was very successful, very little ground movement, very stable. Um, and that was a, a, a good piece of work. This can be achieved by taking extra measures to support the ground above the tunnel. They've also undercrossed the, the Misbourne River in a couple of places with very low cover. And that's in a source protection zone, so there's a lot of concern that some slurry would, would escape and we'd end up with cloudy you know, drinking water. Or you'd have, we'd be able, you know, the environment agency would need to close down the, the borehole for a, a time. A lot of TBMs use a bentonite supporting slurry to help steady the tunnel face during excavation. This is then extracted along with the spoil and filtered. If it enters drinking water, it would be considered a pollutant. So considerable care needs to be taken. But again, that, that passed by very successfully. Uh, Affinity Water very pleased with what happened. To the north of the Chilton Tunnels, there are tunnels that are built using a process known to the tunneling industry as cut and cover. Basically a double precast arch. A cutting is excavated uh, and then some blinding cast on, on the, the base to form a, a really flat surface. And then the arch itself is made up of five elements. There's a single a central wall and then we have two uh, curved side walls and then two arches that then make up the two top, make up the top pieces, that, which, which creates a kind of a double arch shape. And then, so we've got five precast elements. Each precast element is three metres in length. They have reinforcement. They weigh between 16 and 43 tonnes each. And they're constructed in a, a dedicated factory. 
the earth that was removed from the area for the cutting back is backfilled. New trees and shrubs are planted and the tunnel blends again into the landscape, connecting wildlife habitats along with the line of the route. Green tunnels can be less disruptive in situations where a short drive, basically tunnel, is needed and site constraints can permit it. You can't dig a trench through ancient woodlands, but you can do so if you are only disrupting farmland for just a season, for example. And these tunnels are predominantly in mudstone. And the, the issue that they have is with heave, and potential long-term heave of the, the cuttings that they've been excavating. This is the upward movement of the ground in response to excavation, which develops over time. Next comes the long Itchingham Wood Tunnel in Warwickshire. This is a short TBM tunnel just one mile long, which is particularly abrupt considering the 125 metre length of the TBM with its backup train. Now the tunnel is there to protect the woodland dating back to 1600 AD. Now this is considered ancient in ecological terms and it's also a site of special scientific interest as it has complex ecosystems. But if we take our glance below ground, then as far as the tunnel is concerned, it is mudstones and clay. Finally, the Bromford Wood Tunnel is another three and a half mile TBM tunnel designed to minimise impact on the local area. It's located just outside Birmingham and is a similar geology, but it's got some sandstone involved as well. But the truly challenging tunnelling is always when the tunnellers find themselves in a tight space. The Euston throat is that on HS2, and so we need to speak with... Eddie Woods, I'm Deputy Head of Tunnelling at HS2. Eddie works with Martin Nowak and generally focuses his energies on the tunnelling required for this Euston area, which has some of the largest caverns and boxes for transport in British history. Basically, a cavern is a big tunnel. Here, the cavern we've got is about 17 metre diameter. Coming into Euston, there is a cavern constructed by sprayed concrete lining. A cavern constructed with stack drift, a sprayed concrete lining crosscut, and then a trinocular tunnel that splits the line into three grade separate bores before they enter the Euston scissor box and get split into the 10 platforms. Sounds complicated? Well, it is. But the main thing to know is that opening up a large hole in the ground in close proximity to other large holes requires very careful design and support measures. Well, if you've got, if you've got one tunnel, which is seven and a half metre diameter, the, the ground is spanning over one tunnel. When you put another one to it, then if, they, if they're both going at the same time, then that ground in between the two tunnels is getting the stress from both. Basically, your ground is arching over both tunnels which is a much longer span. So that's why you, you, um, you stagger it. And also, if, if I have a problem with one tunnel, it's easier to deal with. But if you have the two tunnels in parallel running next to each other, you have a much bigger problem. But if the works are large to begin with, more care is needed. Fortunately, all of the Euston works are in the good London clay, and at least no ground treatment is needed. 
Most of the works will be constructed using a methodology named after the lining itself. So that's SCL, sprayed concrete lining. If you're doing a, a larger tunnel, then you'll break it down into small faces. Dig sections of the overall tunnel profile out one at a time. For example, you could do what's known as sidewall drifts. So that's excavate two tunnels at the bottom right and left of a cavern face first. And then you are left with an apple core shape in the middle. Or you could excavate the top heading and then lower down the bench excavation. And these are much safer and more stable than tackling the entire arch in one go. For the very largest section of cavern, Eddie and the SCS delivery team have opted for the most conservative methodology in their arsenal, the stacked drift. It's a safer approach, you know, compared to a side drift or anything like that. You know, basically you're making a, uh, an arch, a massive big concrete arch about a uh, minimum metre thick. At the, the joints between two stacked drifts, it's about a metre thick. So you've got this huge big concrete arch before you actually do the bulk excavation. The arch is in fact a series of tunnels excavated in an umbrella above the eventual cavern which will support the ground against collapse. So effectively pre-tunnel tunnels. So if tunneling is the aristocrat of engineering, what is it that impresses the tunnelers? I think the design of the caverns and this thing, that, that is very, very neat and it's probably taken it beyond anything that's ever been done before. SCL is a very staged excavation process. All, the, all this is done in small little advances and they've modelled every excavation stage. And then that takes account of excavating, allowing the ground to relax a little bit, putting on spray concrete, that ageing to take a certain amount of load and then doing the next bit and then all these different increments and all that's been built into this. What they found by doing that is they ended up with quite a lot of compression in this. Compression in an arch means added strength, which means potentially less reinforcement or a thinner lining, not only saving on cost and materials, but also reducing health and safety risks to the workforce. I think a team in Salzburg found before by doing some instrumentation and monitoring. If you have all that compression in there, then the amount of rebuy you need around these openings is significantly really reduced. This is a fantastic opportunity in theory, but HS2 has to adopt procedures that offer the greatest protection in locations as sensitive as the Euston throat. We have an independent tunnel expert panel and they were not happy with that concept of using that to reduce the amount of rebar. And that's why you have a panel. So perhaps the centre of the capital is not the location for engineering to be pushed to its limits, but HS2 wanted to take the opportunity to allow future projects to benefit from its experience. However, what we've asked, what SCS are doing, what we've asked them to do, or I encourage them, is to instrument this because I want. I'd, I'd like to. I like to design things on knowledge rather than ignorance. The load can come on depending on the ground conditions. Uh, London clay, as we know, have, has got um, is over consolidated, so there's high locked in lateral pressure compared to the vertical load. And so that phenomena, because you can change the shape of the tunnel to take a take a take account of 
the compressive load from the ground. I, if you've got a high compressive load in, a flatter arch is beneficial. It is often said in industry that it is in the gift of the larger projects to innovate and adopt new widgets and processes. But it is also possible for them to take a moment for study and to add to industry knowledge to improve future works. And that is exactly what the team are doing here. They are advancing our knowledge of how to build tunnels. The tunnelling required for High Speed 2 Phase 1 has never been seen before in British history. And it's the main reason that this is the largest infrastructure project in Europe. There is even a half-mile, 6.2-metre diameter tunnel just for temporary logistics and site supply being built in London. It is truly a project of mega-projects. And we couldn't take you to every site, but one we chose was Northolt West. Northolt West is an SCS site, and SCS is led by the Swedish contracting giant Skanska. Anders Danielsson, the company's CEO, believes other countries, such as his home country Sweden, can learn from the project as they consider their own high-speed rail projects. Uh, my name is Anders Danielsson. I'm the president and CEO of Skanska. Uh, what I'm most impressed over is the people, that are the, all the skilled people we are gathered around the world uh, to be able to execute a project like this. Uh, that, that's impressive. From an industry perspective, Anders believes that public investments such as HS2 provide a critical opportunity for skills development. I think it's uh, critical, crucial. Uh, it, uh, Great job, obviously, and only on this project. We, we, in this joint venture, we are in we're between four and 5,000 people employed, uh, if you include the supply chain. And overall, the project is uh, employing uh, 29,000 people. So it's a major difference differentiator when it comes to creating jobs. And also, of course, to invest in infrastructure that can take, take down the carbon emission. That's uh, critical for, for the environment going forward. So that's something uh, uh, that we, we really see, want to see more of. So my, uh, my hope is that the, the Sweden continue to invest in infrastructure, even if it's high speed or not. And with all this in mind, it's no wonder that the famous British tunneler Sir Harold Harding once called the profession the aristocrat of engineering. And fighting against this uncertainty, we have the emblem of modern tunneling, the incredible tunnel boring machines, or the TBMs. And these cylindrical, mole-like machines are just absolutely brilliant miracles of modern engineering. Effectively, they are submarines that pass through rock with a rotating cutter head, a screw conveyor to remove the spoil from the face, a conveyor to take the spoil back to the surface, and an erector arm that places precast concrete segments in rings to form the tunnel. And each machine leaves behind it this excavated tunnel that is perfectly lined with these concrete rings. 
Daniel Worsley is the engineering manager for Norfolk Tunnels West. He is responsible for keeping things moving forward on the dig. The machine itself has been fine. And we have back-end issues. The back-end of the tunnel boring machine houses all the support surfaces and earth or muck removal systems. Muck away. So um, it's how, how quickly we can move the muck. So in terms of, so last week when we got settled with some muck issues, we got some, we were making 20, eight, eight to 10 rings a day, which is actually better than expected. The 8.4 mile Northolt tunnel is being constructed using four tunnel boring machines in two phases, known as Northolt Tunnel West and Northolt Tunnel East. Two machines, each weighing more than 2,000 tonnes and measuring 140 metres in length, known as Shazilla and Caroline, are being used to create the first section of the tunnel. Each is operated by 15 people working in shifts. And while one bore is having some muck issues, the other has... Nothing unexpected. I mean, we're only 107, 107 rings in, so... What's the geology here? It's a So we've got... Um, so we started out with very mixed face, a third, a third, a third. We had foam concrete right at the portal for about, for, to allow us to build the crane slab for the assembly. So we needed a 650 tonne assembly crane. We had to dig out some of the clay and put in four metres of foam concrete. Um, once we got past that, the clay, London clay is thinning out. Also as we dive, I actually know it because we're diving, uh, we're getting less London clay in the crown, and then we've got a combination of uh, Harwich group and Lambeth, we're just into the Lambeth group now. The forward progress of a TBM through the ground is known as the advance rate. Northolt tunnels are seeing rates at launch of up to 20 metres a day. So far the maximum we achieved was 20 metres. Uh, but we're still in a, in a starting up and training phase, so we're definitely confident there's more possible. This is Michael Greiner, the tunnel manager for SCS. And at this point, the tunnel machines are still getting warmed up. It takes operators a mile or so to get the feel of how the machine is operating and how the ground is behaving before they can really crank up the speed. But even getting to launch the machine has been a challenge on this long, thin site. The, the, the shape of the site definitely um, provides some logistical challenges, mainly in the setup phase, because in the setup phase we had, uh, we've got a very long stretch construction site. We're doing all the stages in order to, to maximize productivity. We've been working on a lot of places, but the long shape also um, brings quite some challenges that need to be managed. Um, you need to have traffic in and out, but you also need to make sure that the different teams can work alongside in the most productivity. With the TBM fully assembled in this launch site and now cutting its way through the ground, the spoil is brought from the cutting head by a screw conveyor and transported out of the tunnel and loaded onto trucks. Later, a railhead will be built to take muck away on rail and relieve some of the congestion on local roads. And back in the tunnel with the earth removed, the support needs to be built up. 
and this comes in the form of segmented concrete rings. It's a full concrete ring that is divided into equal segments and a keystone, much like the traditional bridge arch, but instead of it just being an arch, this goes all the way round. Here in the Norfolk Tunnels West, we, uh, the inside diameter of the tunnel is 8 meter 80. The thickness of the segments is 35 centimeter. Um, we have got seven segments forming one ring, and uh, the segments have got a length of 1 meter 90, and they are reinforced with rebar cages. Depending on uh, the load situation, we've got different type of rebar cages. We want to um, optimize the costs and reduce also the carbon that we use. The rings along the alignment are uniform, except where a cross passage is needed. A cross passage is a link between the two tunnel bores, and this is vital in an emergency situation to allow a second route of escape, but they also help with maintenance and access requirements through the life of the railway. At these cross passages, strengthened ring segments are needed so that some of the segments can be removed to excavate the needed cross passage, and then the remaining rings take the load. So the cross passage construction over here in the west is uh, it's several stages involved. As we have got water bearing conditions and the first uh, stage we do groundwater mitigation. Uh, that is ranging from uh, depressurization uh, up to full ice rings. The first one is one of the ones that requires ground freezing. So there's a combination of ground freezing and um, just dewatering. It's a combination of the geology and the groundwater and the ground pressures as well and expected inflows. So yes, where we expect higher inflows is where we're doing the freezing. Ground freezing is a method of ground stabilization where the ground is frozen hard by pumping freezing cold saline water through pipes in the ground that have pre-drilled holes in them. Once the ground is frozen solid, it is much more stable and easier to dig through. Ground freezing isn't the only smart solution being employed on the project to make things safer and more efficient. As tunneling progresses around the clock, the team are utilizing the latest in mobile monitoring technology to keep them aware of everything happening on site, even when they are miles away. So yeah, while, I, while I'm commuting here in the morning, I'm, uh, I'm checking the face pressures, um, seeing how many rings we built during the night, uh, seeing where we are in location to other structures. The same way your phone might prompt you with a reminder in the morning, Daniel's phone gives him alerts on any issues that might be developing underground, such as too much muck coming out of the tunnel, a possible indicator that something is going wrong at the cutting phase. Uh, over excavation, so if we get 20% above theoretical volume. Um, over grouting, so again if we get 15-20% it's an alarm that, wow, why, why are we putting so much grout? Taking out too much muck and putting in too much grout could indicate that you've hit a bad patch of ground. As the machine advances one metre, it should take out that same volume in muck. 
if it takes out more, it could be taking muck from above the machine and potentially cause a sinkhole. So these monitoring and alarm systems help significantly reduce the risks in tunneling. Along the entire route of HS2, underground and overground, engineers are employing the most sophisticated technologies to deliver the project safely and efficiently. But as the tunneling works demonstrate, they are not only relying on what has come before them, the teams on HS2 are expanding our engineering knowledge by gathering data, trialing new technologies, looking at new methodologies and helping develop a highly skilled workforce to realize Britain's future infrastructure ambitions. And in this episode, we have seen how trains have cut under obstacles. Next episode, we see how they fly over them. Next time on How to Build a Railway. So the bridge industry has evolved. We're committed to good design and good design being not just about function. Right at the beginning, we realised that this was going to be a major, probably the viaduct of the project. So you do need to consider the topography. You need to consider what obstacles we're crossing. So not just designing something that is economic to build, quick to put in place, but actually looks very, very functional for the rest of its life. All bridges are designed for 120 years. Infrastructure like this lasts for hundreds of years. And it's a legacy. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Martin Herrenconnect, Martin Nowak, Eddie Woods, Anders Danielson, Michael Greiner and Daniel Worsley. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.